This episode of the podcast is brought to you by HRH Combat Arms. They can turn your vision into reality. They specialize in gunsmithing and Cerakoting. Your Cerakote specialist is Air Force veteran and retired police sergeant Paul Ware, a.k.a. the Sarge. He can Cerakote your firearms, auto parts, tools, even your sports equipment. And then your master gunsmith is Marine veteran Steve Miller. This veteran-owned business is located at 5025 Saunders Suite, 103, Fort Worth, Texas, 76119. You can call them at 682 0363 and you can find them online at www.hrhcombatarms.com that's www.hrhcombatarms.com Alright, welcome back to Cops One Donut. I am your host, Eric Levine. Today, my special guest is the one, the only, Lieutenant Randy Sutton from the, formerly from the Las Vegas PD. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Dude, so, uh, I was you were suggested to me by one of the members of my podcast, and I'm like, Randy Sutton, they're like, you ever heard of him? I'm like, no, I never heard of the guy. And uh, so... She starts sending me link. I don't want to call her name out because she doesn't want to be on here. But um, she's like, uh, "Hey, this guy's—he's pretty big deal. So if you're going to reach out to him, don't waste his time." And I was like, "Who is she? Ta- how I not? You know, I'm pretty big in the pol- <laughs> like I'm I'm pretty in the know for you know my educational background and being an instructor and all that stuff." And I start looking up, and I'm like, "I haven't heard of this dude." And then it clicked. I've seen you on Police One. They did a they did a, had done an article on you on Police One as one of the most decorated cops in the nation, and I'm like, holy shit, okay. And then Las Vegas. No, no, no. Wait a minute. It wasn't the nation. It was the, one of the highest decorated officers in Las Vegas Metro. Oh, they said in the nation. Well, you know what? It's, it's the media. What do you expect? That's right. Okay. Hey, whatever. It's a small embellishment. That's all right. A little white lie. That's fine. But uh, look at the wall behind you, bro. I just can't be too far off. Oh, well, you want to see the wall? Oh, yeah. Let's there's, see the, it. there's the I love me wall right there. That's, okay. Man, yours is, <laughs> mine has like a couple degrees and some military stuff, but nothing fancy. <laughs> um, although I am starting to compete with you because... I'm getting awarded the merit award, uh, the 24th, which I'm pretty proud Ooh. of. Uh, it's the first like big award I've ever got. It's like our third highest at my department that I can't talk about the name here, but <laughs> uh, you get that <laughs> whole do. thing. Um, enough about me. Let's get back to you, sir. Um, so first off, I there's a whole bunch that we can talk about with you. Um, so what I would like to do first, sir, is what... Where did you come from and how did you get into law enforcement? Well, originally I was a police officer in New Jersey. I did uh, 10 years uh, as a cop with a small community of Princeton, where the university is, but I was in the town, uh, Princeton Borough Police Department. I uh, began my police career at the ripe old age of 19. And at the time, I was one of the youngest officers in New Jersey. Uh, they had just changed the age of majority from 21 to 18. And they figured, well, that was, I, I think I slipped in there because when I look back, <laughs> I look back on the decisions I made as a 19 year old cop, I still cringe today, but I did slip in there and I got hired by the Princeton police department 
I'm getting ready to go to the New Jersey State Police Academy. And, you know, you could vote, you could drink. But what you couldn't do is buy ammunition because federally you had to be 21. Right. So I had to have my mom go buy my bullets for me for the uh, for the police academy. And uh, <laughs> You hear stories about that going through academies and stuff. You never actually talked to somebody that went through it. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Mm. So I, uh, I spent 10 years there. I was a patrol officer and then a detective for four years. And, uh, and I was at the top of my pay scale and it was, uh, it was a, you know, Princeton's a very wealthy community. So I was getting paid pretty good, but I was, I was bored to death, man. Small, you know, 30 officer department. And, uh, when I was 30 years old, I made the decision that I couldn't, I just couldn't do it another, another, uh, 15 years. So I bailed out and I got hired by the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, had to start all over again, go through the academy like a rookie yep. and, uh, and then spent 24 years um, working for Las Vegas Metro and retired at the rank of Lieutenant. Man, that has to be, I'm in an exciting city. Don't get me wrong, but you're in the city of sin. I mean, everybody <laughs> yeah. goes there to do dumb shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. Um, so tell me this, and this is, I go down a lot of rabbit holes. I rem, So I watched Cops religiously. One, because my dad was on it uh, for the same city that I work in. And, um, oh, really? It wasn't cool. his episode. Like, it, they weren't following him around. He just um, shows up on scene. But, you know, it's your dad. So you're like, that's my dad. That's cool, you know. So I grew up with Cops, and uh, there's an episode in Vegas. I know you've been on it. I just haven't seen it. But... There's an episode of a black officer that just basically choke slams this dude, this drunk yeah. dude. <laughs> it's probably the most famous cops episode that there is. Oh, I love and, it. Uh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. He just retired, in fact, a couple of months ago. Okay. And uh, um, yeah, I was actually the most featured officer on the show. Really? In, uh, three seasons, over 14 episodes. And uh, I actually. That played a, a a major influence in my life for um, where my path was going to take me. Completely, you know, unintended, but um, the power of that medium um, catapulted me into some different directions I never would have gone. Nice, yeah. I saw um, some of the stuff. Uh, I did. I try not to do a lot of research on my guests because I want to have a conversation. Like I want to talk. So I'll figure out like some talking points and stuff like that. But you've been on cops, which is the one of, it's the most iconic police show. Um, they've got live PD and stuff like that out there now, which I like live PD. Um, but now cops, I think is getting rebooted. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Fox picked it up. So, well, it's on, uh, it's on the Fox streaming network now because it, as as part of the madness of the uh, George Floyd nonsense, uh, they took it. They, of course, anything that was pro police uh, was canceled. Right. So it was on the regular Fox network. Now it's on the streaming network. Let, let's let's go down that direction. Why do you think? Why is it that we're canceling stuff like that when when they want when the public wants transparency from police shows like that? I think answer a lot of questions on how police do their job, do, you know, answer kind of that. Why do they do what they do and how they do it and all that stuff. So what's the deal? Why would we cancel that type of thing? Well, you had, you had corporate pussies who were, who were, uh, you know, just, uh, 
um, doing the knee jerk reaction like everybody else was. I mean, they canceled. They were so they were so stupid and so ignorant of about about their their wanting to um, you know erase law enforcement from the public's view that they canceled that. They canceled live PD. They even there's a cartoon called that 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 is oh Paw Patrol. Yeah, yeah, and they, they, yeah. It's it shows you the idiocy. I remember that. of corporate America. You know, uh, if they're willing to 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 give in to that type of of uh, ludicrous um, response to to an event that w- was so overreacted to, it just shows you, yeah, you know the uh, the the mindset. And the adults have left the room when it comes down to politics in America anyway. And that's why I'm glad we got guys like you. Um, I'm trying to be a guy like you. Uh, I, I want, I want open, honest communication with the public. I want them to fully understand, at least from my perspective, why we do what we do, how we do it, what we're thinking while we do it. Um, and when you have shows like that, it only, and, and they're getting canceled. It only furthers to me that, the media wants to drive division. The, the, you know, the main. You're, abs- you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The media wants it. And then you have, you have uh, cowardice in, in corporate America, um, which, uh, you know, reveal themselves uh, by their, by their uh, actions like this. I mean, why? It, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It's irrational. It's an irrational response. Yet, these are these are people making millions of dollars at the top of the food chain of corporate America, and it shows you that uh, they're just they're they're dumb just as many others. Yeah, and it, I get frustrated talking about the media because it's like the one person, the one you know, I call him a person, the one person that could be such an asset to bridging gaps between police and the community, not just police, all first responder. You got firefighters getting attacked now. You got ambulance. Um, EMTs getting attacked, uh, all these different um, people that are just here trying to help. Unfortunately, police get the worst side of that because <laughs> we're the ones enforcing instead of, you know, just being there to help. We kind of, we're the catch-all. We are there to help the victim, but sometimes trying to help also leads into us enforcing on a suspect. So it just, it's just the way it goes, I guess. But here we are, we could be using the media as such a powerful tool and they won't, they won't help us because it doesn't help their bottom line. And that's for Oh yeah. Oh, listen, I, I've seen, I've seen, uh, um, out and out, um, uh, media bias from many, many, I, many sources. Um, I was victimized by it myself. Really? I was, uh, yeah, in a major way. Well, first of all, if you don't if you don't toe the party line with some of the media uh, outlets, then then you you just they won't use you. Um, I I do a lot of commentating for Fox News and also One America News and Newsmax. Well, CNN reached out to me, much to my surprise, um, after the uh, after the murder of the the Dallas police officers back in 2016, I think it is. And I was surprised that they reached out to me and they wanted, they booked me to talk about that tragic day. And uh, a couple hours before the, the interview was supposed to take place, 
the producer contacts me and does something I've never had happen to me before or after. And that was they actually gave me the questions and asked me how I was going to respond to them. And I guess I wasn't savvy enough because I answered them truthfully. Ah. And they and they canceled the interview because oh. they didn't want to, they didn't want the truth. Yeah. They wanted their version. So what they did was they brought on one of their tame um, commentators and uh, they gave, and he gave the answers they wanted. Really? Yeah. Damn. See that, that that's unfortunate because I think one of the, one of the breaths of fresh air is when you get, especially the retired cops. I love having the retired cops because they're no longer, you know, bound by, exactly. by, right. by their job. Um, like me, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. I can't fully say what I want to say, um, <laughs> which is okay because I try to keep my stuff more educational and bridge gaps. I try not to get too political. So, um, I, I don't have to walk a very fine line when I do that. Um, but I am beholden to where I work and they could at any time say, uh, you misrepresented the department. We got to let you go. Absolutely. And, and many, many people who have either, um, uh, had their own podcasts or even just a, a mere social media post have faced the wrath of those agencies and, 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 and in fact lost their jobs because of it. Yes. So you do have to be very careful. Yep. Um, and, and, I'm one of those. I think the message is too important to try to somebody's got to have the balls to do it. You know what I mean? Somebody's got to get out there and say it. Um, we, you know, it's great when we have our retired guys that can do it. Um, but then again, when you're retired, you, your feet aren't on the ground anymore. You start to lose, lose a little bit of that. Now I'm not saying you lost it, sir. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but um, you know how it is. Yeah, you talk your way out of that now. I know. Right. Like you, did you ever have to wear a body camera while you were out there? Uh, no. See, it totally We didn't changed. have body cameras. We didn't have dash cams. In fact, when dash cams first came out, we called it the, the punk in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you see what I mean? Like the culture of policing just in one thing, body cameras or um, yeah. tasers, are, you know, they're, they come leaps and bounds. You know, they're not catching people on fire anymore and stuff like that. So, uh just the culture of policing itself has changed a lot, man. I don't know when the last time you went to a police academy has been, but just just the dynamics of the recruits that come through and the stuff that comes out of their mouth. Like when you went through, or maybe even when I went through, we would have never dared even question something. And now they question everything. Well, why do we do that? Why do we, and it's, yeah. it's just different. Yeah. It's different. So that's why I like having – Guys like you out there, we can, you and I can bounce. Well, back in my day, this is how we did it. And I start thinking, and I'm like, shit, why did, why did we get away from that? What's the reasons we got away from some of that stuff? Because what because, used to be. Because policing got, got pussified. That's why. <laughs> because, well, that's kind of the point I'm getting to is it seems like <laughs> people are bringing up ideas and they think they're new. And they're like, oh, why don't we try this? And then you get an old school dude that's like, we, we did that. And you got away from okay. it. Because there, there is, there are no new ideas. Yeah. Okay, it's just they're retreads. Yes, it's like verbal judo. What do we call it now? De-escalation. Yeah. De-escalation. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, well, we, I call that buzzword bingo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's like, what's going to be the new coined yeah. term when it comes yeah. to police work? Um, speaking of coined terms, 
you've got a radio show called Blue Lives, right? Blue Lives, Blue Lives radio. radio. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually rebranding that. It is a. It was just a radio show, um, and a, a couple months back, I changed the format. So not only is there an audio radio show, which is heard on iHeartRadio and a, and a bunch of other places, but also uh, now it's now a podcast as well. So it's now called The Voice for American Law Enforcement. Oh. And it's uh, it's uh, available on AmericaOutloud.com. And also uh, it's heard on iHeartRadio and America Out Loud and, and all the Spotify's and all that other stuff. Yeah. And I'm actually in talks now to bring it to a new platform, uh, which will get even, even more, uh, uh, attention. Nice dude. I need your help. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> you got Just, people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's nice. So what's the premise of, uh, what's the premise of your show? Um, it's, it's the, it's to tell the truth about law enforcement. I, what I usually do is I go over, over, um, stories that are in the news and then give a police perspective. I'm actually on two other podcasts too. I'm on a, a panel show called LEO Roundtable, um, out of, uh, Florida. That's a nationally syndicated radio show and, uh, it's run by some former Tampa cops and also another one called I Detective which is uh, um, out of Buffalo, and that's run by a retired uh, detective from up there. So, and then my own, my own weekly show. Um, and then, of course, I do all the, the media stuff as well. Oh, that's, man, that's awesome. iDetective is the other one? iDetective, I yeah. Okay. Now, when you were a cop, what, what jobs did you hold going through, obviously? Well, throughout my career, um, I was uh, – I was a patrol officer in New Jersey for six years. And then four years, I was a detective. And there, as a detective in a small community, you are you do everything. You do crime scene work. You investigate all the major crimes, as well as you know the the smaller you know uh, felony crimes as well, narcotics, the whole bit. So then, when I when I came to Metro, I had to start over. Started as a patrol officer. And then uh, became a uh, field training officer, which in my estimation, field training is probably one of the most critical jobs in a police department. And the field training officers are really the unsung heroes of policing because they're the ones that have to mold Mm -hmm. and train those officers once they get out of the academy into being, you know, real living, breathing Real coppers. Yeah. Let's let's and keep so let's stay on that topic different. because the field training officer and you tell me what your opinion is of this. They are the ones that are going to set the tone for the rest of an officer's career. So if you get a jaded, uh, cynical, doesn't like to do police work FTO or somebody that was forced to be an FTO, those are the worst because now they're you're going to mold a a, a rookie who's you know. He, they got into police work for a reason, and then they're going to get this this burn jaded view of, a, of what this FTO is putting on them. And that's yeah. Oh no, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right, and that's why the field training position has to be has to be respected. Yes. Um, and but here's here's the issue now. You have you have FTOs that don't want the responsibility, or senior more senior officers who don't want the responsibility anymore. 
And it goes along with what's been happening in policing with the lack of recruitment, with the lack of retention. And, you know, policing is, is, is going to be critically understaffed for the next number of years. It's oh, going to yeah. take a long time to try and bring back the level yeah. of, of, uh, of policing to, you know, the staffing levels that were there before the insanity started. Yeah. This the, is the accordion effect is basically what it's going to have. You're going to have this yeah. huge, um, just empty vessel. There's not going to be anybody in the academies. And then once everybody thinks the coast is clear, then you're going to have this huge influx. But the thing that I worry about right well, now, I, I don't think we're going to see a huge inf- influx. I think it's going to be a drip, 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 because nothing is changing right now. Right. You no, know, nothing is changing. We're, we're, it's going to take years, yeah. literally years. It, we're, we're probably looking at a decade before we see, we see the, the resurgence of, of the numbers of people, um, you know, that want the job. Yeah. We've made it, we've made it so difficult for young men and women to want to join this profession. And that's what, that's, that's how effective the, uh, the, the uh, uh, anti-law enforcement lobby is. They've done a tremendous job. They've, they've done more damage than they ever thought they could. Yeah. And then you think of the, and this may be for the public that may not think about this, but the, the people you are going to get for the next 10 years, let's say your quality of recruit is going to be garbage. Because now you're yeah. going to have to start lowering lowering your standards because a high standard right. recruits not coming through. It's 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 happening right now. Yes, it's happening right now as we speak. And this isn't the first time in history um, where where politics has played a very damaging role in in uh, in policing recruitment. Um, you know, one of the things that I did during my career was I was a police trainer for many many years. Um, in fact, I was in charge of the advanced training unit of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for a number of years. And I, I uh, did a course around the country. I actually wrote an article called Policing with Honor, uh, How to Survive Your Career Ethically. And it was picked up by all the national police magazines. I started getting phone calls. Hey, do you do a presentation on this? So I, I put together an eight-hour um, eight class called Policing with Honor. And wound up teaching it to thousands of cops across the country. And it was a learning experience for me as well, because what I, when I was doing all my research, um, a number of police agencies who altered or diminished their, um, their, their standards in order to attract um, certain candidates, like in Miami, they wanted Spanish-speaking cops. They didn't give a damn about how they were going to get them. And so they lowered the standards to the point where they were actually hiring people who were felons. And what did that lead to? The biggest scandal in Miami PD history, when, when a bunch of their cops, who were also drug dealers, murdered a whole bunch of, of other drug dealers and stole their dope. Damn. So if you, if you, and now what we're seeing is because nobody is, is signing up for police tests anymore, they are altering and lowering the standards. And what we're going to get is just as you said, this is going to become the self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you're going to get cops who shouldn't be cops. And they're going to be doing misconduct and corruption. 
and then it's going to reflect back on the all the police again. Right. So this is a bad cycle to get into. Yeah. I urge police agencies do not change your standards. Do what the Marine Corps did. You go after a few good men. That's what you do. Yeah, it's um, I, I'm happy to say at least where I've been, um, they're they're walking, they're doing their part, and uh, but the difference between where I police at is we're supported by the citizens. Um, one of the best things that the area that I'm around does is the citizens vote every four or five years for a half cent tax for the police specifically for the police. And that's kind of like your thermometer um, of how well you're doing. And it's passed at like, even at the, the, the peak of the, you know, like the Ferguson stuff and all that stuff, it passed with like 80 to 90%. Wow. Which is amazing. Which shows you. That's really big. That's a big deal. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge number. And that for the police is a good gauge of where your levels at, where, how are we serving the citizens the way they want to be served? So it, completely destroys the whole um defund the police rhetoric and i think like minnesota and some of them guys are really they like they see the error of their ways because they're paying for that now and like you said how long is this how long are they going to pay for that because oh yeah yeah it's going to be it's going to be years and you know i have a new book coming out in may or june called rescuing 911 the fight for America's safety. And uh, this is where I examine everything that has been taking place, the irrational response to uh, to Ferguson, to George Floyd, to uh, Tamir uh, Rice, and then, and then try and figure out how we can work together between the police and the, and the people that they serve in order to rescue 911. Because there are cities right now where you call 911 and ain't nobody coming. Yep. Flint, my hometown, where I'm from. I don't know if you saw the uh, the Netflix documentary they did. They were waiting 27 hours for a home invasion call where the, the, homeowner, the homeowner got got his ass beat. Um, luckily, he didn't die, but by the time the police showed up, he was patched up. He had went to the hospital, got himself fixed up. And they're responding 27 hours later on a home. Wow, invasion. that's insane. Where I come from, that's a priority one call. Everything else stops. Yeah, at, uh, right. Um, so my question to you with your experience, how do we start mending this? How do we start? What, what's the path to start making this shit better? Well, uh, we're starting to see a little, a little change right now. Um, Americans are getting fed up with, the, the insanity of, of the defund the police movement, you don't really hear that much anymore because it is a failed, I mean, even on the face of it, the, the, even the phrase defund the police is so nonsensical, but yet you had buy-in from political leadership. Uh, you have, you have um, uh, buy-in from corporate America that, that jumped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, which of course now they realize they got scammed out of. Um, and then uh, uh, they they embraced this this ludicrous policy or or movement, I should say. It was never a policy, and but so we're starting to see Americans are going whoa whoa whoa. Hold on a second now. It took a lot of pain 
because the body count is still rising in Portland and in Seattle and in New York and in, in, in Philadelphia and many of the major cities that embraced this ludicrous um, philosophy. I mean, but we're but it, we're not out of the woods yet. We're right. not nearly out of the woods. Uh, we're seeing, uh, for instance, um, uh, refund the police movements. We are seeing um, ro- uh, recall efforts against uh, George Gascon, the district attorney in Los Angeles, against Chesa Bowden in San Francisco, two of the most radical district attorneys on the face of the planet. So there's recall efforts now. That takes a lot. That takes a lot of public involvement. And that's the key. That's the key. It is time for the silent majority to rise up and break the silence. Because that is the way we're going to get meaningful change in America. And we are starting to see that. You're seeing uh, the, the, the governor in, uh, in uh, Virginia. Uh, the Democratic governor there was, was just ousted. Um, in a surprise victory for uh, for Yunkin. Uh, you're seeing 10 judges in Harris County, uh, liberal judges, were just voted out of office. So this is where the silent majority needs to, needs to come out and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to play a role. We're going to take back our country. And it has to be done in city by city. Yeah, I, I hate, I hate that something awful has to happen for something good. It, it seems like that's always the way. Um, Ferguson, you know, it's unfortunate that somebody died, um, but they they destroyed an officer's career. His career had he's, to be destroyed. He's still in hiding. Yeah, exactly, and he was proven to be innocent of all of that. Um, he can never do probably the career that was his calling, which you know. I don't care who you are. If you're doing what you love, I mean, that's living the dream. So sucks for him. But on uh, out of the ashes of that, we got body cameras. I love body cameras. Um, I'm a big proponent for them. Uh, and then, you know, this defund the police. It sucks that these cities had to suffer so bad. But you see all the ones that are that, that went for it, they, they've revert. At least I've, I think they all have. Um, I, no, no, they have not. They haven't. They still got no, some holding not. out on that. In fact, Philadelphia, which is which is now seen on an unbelievable rise in crime, has elected a district attorney who is a Soros elected attorney, uh, district attorney who is I call them uh, Trojan horse district attorneys or prosecutors because they were they were voted into office. And now they are, they are the enemy. The enemy is within the criminal justice system. And they are making every uh, move to destroy that criminal justice system. So Philadelphia um, uh, goes along and, and, and brings out one of them who is, who is uh, his name is Krasner. He's as radical as they come. Um, then just, just a month or so ago, the Las Vegas, excuse me, the, the Philadelphia City Council voted to um, hamstring the police even more by instituting a policy of, of no traffic stops for, quote, minor offenses, unquote, in the name of rash, ra- racial equity. And so they are continuing 
with the with the divisive nonsense of uh, blaming the police for all of the the ills of society, and uh, so and they're not the only ones. Uh, yeah. LA LAPD, uh, the largest police department, one of the largest in the country, they just did the same thing. So you're so we're not nearly out of the woods yet at okay. all. I know. Um, I think Austin. Cause I'm in Texas. I think oh, Austin, boy, Austin. Yeah. They did, they did the defund the police thing and voted it out or voted for it. And then um, I think the governor, just like you said, or he stepped in and said that that ain't going to fly. Like, well, he's going to get yes those cops no. the money. Um, the governor is still, is still uh, uh, not, doesn't have that the power to do as much as, as he would like to do. Um, you're still seeing Austin. They, uh, they, their 911 response time is, is incredibly slow. They, uh, in fact, the union came out and said that, that, that they don't even, they don't even investigate crimes that aren't in progress, basically. Right. Um, so, and then they just indicted the district attorney there, who was another Soros district attorney, just indicted 19 police officers for defending themselves during the George Floyd riots. So, you are you're we this this movement is still happening big time really yeah the and which is nuts to me because i've been in texas 10 years i've never heard of austin as being a corrupt police department so i think it shows the power that the media has had at swinging people's opinions on a department that really hasn't hasn't done anything to deserve that type of reputation no no they absolutely have not this is all this is all part of the manipulation yeah. of the media and the and the and the uh, political left and they i mean look at austin is down i think what down 40% of their uh of their strength i mean you can't police like that no not especially as fast as that city's growing yeah and i i revert back to like how do we how do we start getting the majority, the silent majority, as you said, what do we got to do to get them to start speaking up? Because- you know, I was um, I was given an, a national TV interview not too long ago, and the, the host kept on asking me about police reform. Uh, I, I love that word, police reform. And I said, the police don't need to be reformed. The police need a good PR person. That's... Yeah. Because... That's it in, in a nutshell. The, the uh, their policing has just gotten a bad rap because of of the of the the media, um, and there's been no there's been no strong leadership voice um, for American law enforcement. And so, I mean, listen, you know, I'm I'm happy to do my part, but you know, you, you're you're doing your part, I'm doing my part, but you haven't seen. Um, a really cohesive police leadership voice, um, even during you know the, the the worst of times, you never heard International Association of Chiefs of Police do anything other than, than kiss people's ass. You didn't see any of the of the uh, major police leadership stepping up into the void where they should have. So it it it's a it comes down to being a grassroots kind of effort, like you and like me and. There are lots of people like us, and and we we need to keep beating the drum. And as as the body count continues to rise, 
and terrible things happen to people in Austin or there's going to wind up to be some absolutely heartbreaking, violent thing that's going to happen, which will tell people, oh, my God, what did we do? Yeah. But then it's too late because it's going to take years to rebuild. Yes. Yeah, man, it's it it's it, it stinks because I know a lot of people that are interested in police work that will never do it. They will never, and I think they'd make great cops. And then on the flip side of that, yeah. how many officers do you know that have quit to go do real estate or go do uh, just something else? I know guys that they've got 10, 15 years on the job, and they just said, you know what? This ain't worth it. I got oh, yeah. no back. Oh, absolutely. No oh, I, there's, I, I, know, I know quite literally hundreds yeah. who just said, I, I can't do it anymore. Or... They get out because of what's, you know, what's happening to to the police officer is one thing, but their families are, are, are being affected too. Yeah. Kids are being bullied. Wives are being harassed. Families, you know, are, are being targeted. So, you know, they're thinking about, about, it's not just about them. It's about their families too. Yeah. And you don't hear much of that. And yet it is, it is, um, it's a major problem. Yeah, I I re, I remember as a kid, you know, my dad like it was like you bragged about what your dad did. You're you know, yeah, people ask sure. your parents. Right today, my kids know. Don't mention that dad's in the military. Don't mention that dad's a cop. You know, people ask. Oh, I work for the city. You know, the, the standard yeah. old stuff, <laughs> and it stinks that you can't be prideful of of what I think is. To me, I don't know anything better. I, I love this career. You know what? There, I'm there obsessed. Is, there is no more noble profession. There is no more noble profession, and uh, and we need to be proud of what we what we are and who we are. Yeah. Um, in fact, that that culture of pride is something that um, I talk about a lot because that culture of pride is something that is um, that is self fulfilling. Yeah. When you are proud of who you are, when you're proud of your agency. In your department, in your profession, you do it better. Yeah, absolutely. And and you and you wear that. You wear that. Um, yeah. But I mean, I've listen. I I was in a I was in a um, a bar the other day. I know that'll shock you. <laughs> and and casual conversation came up with the guy that I was sitting next to. And uh, he asked me what I do, and I told him what I do now is I'm a commentator for law enforcement, and I run a nationwide charity that helps injured and disabled police officers. And he looked at me, and he basically said, oh, turn, and would, didn't want to even engage me in conversation anymore. So this is not, and that's not an unusual circumstance. That's, yeah. It's too bad, because I believe that if, if he listened to me for just a few minutes and engaged me in some type of conversation, that he might just find out, you know what, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about these, these men and women. Yeah. Or at least but, that one person, if I can yeah. win just one person over with what they think about cops, just with me, I'm, I'm winning. I'm, I'm doing something. And, and that, yeah, yeah that's that right. was the, that was basically the, the premise of this podcast was just trying to win over at least one person, but through 
education, telling, telling what, you know, like you get a SWAT officer, talk to them. A lot of people love SWAT. I don't know why, um, but they love SWAT or they want to know about SWAT. Maybe they hate SWAT, but they've never sat down and talked to a SWAT officer. They've never heard a SWAT officer talk. And it's just getting them to hear you out usually is enough, in my opinion. Everybody that I've talked to, I have never, ever had somebody so far anti-cop that I couldn't at least win them over about me if they were willing to talk. But mm-hmm. the ones that just shut you off and don't want to hear another point of view, that's hard to win. That's hard to... That's well, hard yeah, to... but you know what? It, with people that are that, are that ignorant, screw them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's just like a smoker. They can't quit until they want to quit. Yeah. And and it's the same way with trying to, I don't want to necessarily say win people over. I don't want to win you over. I want you to like, hear me out and, you know, give me, give me the benefit of the doubt. If not, then at least tell me why, what can I do to fix it? Um, that's what I'm constantly on the, on the, the hunt for. Like, what do you what do you want us to do to fix it? Because you were talking about police reform, and I don't believe in police reform because we never stop changing as cops. Like we're always trying to do it better. At least at every agency I've been a part of. Right. I, like, I call that police evolving. Yeah. And that's and that's as a as a matter of course, law enforcement evolves. It evolves because of social situations. Yeah. It evolves because of, of technology. So it's natural and normal. And, and now not to say there are, if, if, if I was, if I was made, if I was the president, there are some changes that I would make to law enforcement as, as a whole, which would, I believe make law enforcement better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, it's, when you have 18,000 different police agencies in this country and you have 18,000 different policies and procedures and communications issues and different state laws and, and it's, it's a big mishmash that unfortunately um, can be counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find, um, as a, I'm a detective now, that's what I do, um, for property crime stuff. And one of the first things I started trying to do was connect with other detectives from other agencies. And it was amazing to me that there was no, just the sister agencies, the one that surround us. There's, there's no master list. If there is a master list of people like it's because that one detective took the time to reach out to all these agencies we, we do, as police, we have a hard time talking outside of our little fishbowl. Yep. And, and that would improve policing a lot. And I don't think we do it intentionally. I just, we get busy, we get wrapped up, and it's not a, it's not a tradition. It's not something that we are used to doing. And, you know, you know let me tell you, <laughs> we were just talking about history repeating itself. When I was a detective back in Princeton, this is in the 70s, mind you, early 80s, um, we had the same issue because my, my community was a mile and a half square. We were surrounded by a, a, a 17 square mile department. Across the highway was another 30 officer department. And we wound up putting together what we call the Delaware Valley Detectives Association, which once a month we would meet. And because there were like 
47 different municipalities in the one county. And of course, the crooks don't care. They're going to hit everybody, right? right? And we didn't know if an investigation was going. So this has been going on for decades. Yeah. And we still haven't figured it out. And, and, we still haven't figured and it communication out. has only gotten easier. Now I got, yeah. I got a computer in my pocket everywhere I go. I can email, I can text. It can be instantaneous, <clears throat> you know, and we still have trouble communicating. There are some things that um, I don't know if you've ever heard of flock camera system Mm -hmm. okay so this this company they came to where i work and they're awesome basically it's it's a very simple concept they they track license plates on on corners right so on on public roadways so there's no big brother issue or anything like that it's one of those things that uh anybody could be out there filming so we've got cameras set up at strategic locations and what you find out when you start tracking your bad guys is there if another city has a flock camera that's pretty close now you're sharing information and you don't Mm. ever have to reach out to each other because whatever flock cameras i have are automatically communicating with this other network over here and i can control where i want to see these hits at so i don't need to see hits out of florida that that doesn't concern me if my bad guys out in florida now oh well so be it but yeah. I can see it in the adjacent cities if they're flocking. We call it flocking. We just make up our own words in the police world. But uh, they're flocking in this next community over. And to me, it kind of changed the way I do detective work now. Because not only am I solving my cases by going and catching these guys in you know my sister cities, but now I'm reaching out to the detectives because if you, as a detective, put a plate on there, it says your name and your contact information. So now right. I reach out and I'm like, Hey, detective Sutton, um, your guy's been hitting over here. We got him located at this spot. When we get him arrested, do you want to talk to him? So now we've opened the channel. Yeah. See, that's, that's law enforcement evolving. Yes. Because yeah. of the technology. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, great. That's, that's yeah. And that's, you know, that's the, the there are more and more tools mm-hmm. coming to us. Yeah. Um, but embracing that technology, you know, uh, we're, we've been pretty slow to, oh, yeah. to embrace technology. We're always behind the curve. Yeah. Yeah. In anything. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, if people knew the, the amount of fraud, internet fraud, credit card card fraud that goes on, I mean, I don't know how agencies keep up with that. That is a whole other animal just because of technology. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. That is un and it most of it's not even happening from our nation. It's coming from across yeah. the, the pond, you know, and what do you do? What do you do with that? So it like you said, we're we're behind the curve when it comes to tech, but the stuff that's coming out, the some of the, like this flock thing, man, it's it's one of my new favorite toys. I feel like I'm cheating. I got like the cheat codes to, <laughs> to catch bad guys. So I love that stuff. But um hey, it still it still good comes down to doing real police work though. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it you're, it, you're given that lead mm-hmm. which can which can break the case, but it still comes down to being a gumshoe. Yep. And it's it's fun because you know, it's like putting together any case, but you figured out a new path, which it feeds my idea. I'm obsessive compulsive when it comes to like, like, look at this podcast. I meant to spend 2000 to get it started and I ended up spending like 12 <laughs> to get it going. And just because I started getting addicted to it. Um, 
And it's the same with detective work. I like, I get addicted to putting the puzzle together and it's even more fun when you reach out to a, a sister agency and you're like, Hey, I closed four cases on this dude. Um, how many do you guys got over there? And they're like, dude, we got 11. And you just realized you just closed almost 20 cases just by opening up that channel, that network. Yeah. And yeah. that, it, I, that's the stuff I want public to see because you don't hear about that stuff. That's the day to day grind. Like that's the, that, that happens daily. Um, especially at these bigger agencies uh, where you're in Vegas, man. I imagine if you had some of this technology <laughs> back then, the, cause yeah, for sure. People don't want to hear it, but the farther you go back, the harder police work was, I, I think we're, if it wasn't, for the, the politics side of it, police work has just gotten easier and easier um, if you have some technological savvy. If you can't yeah. type today, like, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> so <laughs> learn how to use a computer, guys, while you're out there. I And social media. Social media is huge. We catch a lot of bad guys for just sure. with social yeah. media. People want to brag about their job, their, their licks that they're hitting out there. They're like, oh, look, I got five catalytic converters for sale. Like, mm-hmm. That's a huge one. You guys having problems with catalytic converters where you're at? Oh, big time. Big time. Well, I, a retired cop friend of mine just a few weeks ago um, heard some noise, went out in his driveway, and there's a guy cutting off his catalytic converter <laughs> on his RV. And when he went to confront him, the guy pulled a gun on him Ooh. for a catalytic converter. That's that's uh, that's two to three grand. They're worth a lot of money. <laughs> Crazy, man. Yeah. Crazy. So... You've got this uh, this nonprofit, the Wounded Blue. You mentioned it um, when you said you talked to that. You started telling that guy about who you were at the bar. Right. So, um, in an effort to to show just what I want to make this a point. You're retired and you're still serving the community. You're still out there doing it. Like that calling never stops. And can you explain what the Wounded Blue is? Sure. Um... Wounded Blue is a nationwide 501c3 nonprofit organization that is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And what we do is our mission is to improve the lives of injured and disabled officers through support, education, assistance, and legislation. And we've uh, been operational for, we're coming up on our third year in May. And we've helped more than 14,000 American law enforcement officers. Damn. And that's that's an astounding number. But, you know, here's a statistic for you. Um, last year, uh, more than 60,000 uh, police officers in this country were physically assaulted. That's, that's an incredible number. I was. And then you add on to that, the physical assaults, then you add on the psychological problems. That, that the injuries that are caused by, um, by the psychological traumas of being a cop. And you have, you have a lot of cops out there that are facing serious, serious issues. You know, um, and my team is made up of all cops who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, uh, faced uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of challenges, and they still want to continue to serve. And that's the important thing here. You know, you touched on it about me, but I'm not alone in this world. Um, my team, they call it's called the Peer Advocate Support Team. They're all uh, highly trained 
uh, peer counselors, and they work tirelessly to help their brothers and sisters. Uh, they're an amazing group of people, and they're literally saving lives. I've had more. I've had more people contact me and said, "If it weren't for you guys, I would have. Been, I was going to kill myself." Damn. Um, and it's it's critical work that we do. Um, so, I, of all the things I've done in my in my life, um, and it, I, this is not somewhere where I ever thought I would wind up in this space, but um, you know, my just to give you a little background, the reason I didn't intend to retire when I did, but I had a stroke in my police car uh, right on the Las Vegas Boulevard on the Strip. And what happened after that was something that shocked me. And that was my own department turned its back on me and refused to pay my medical bills. Um, they ruined my credit. I had bill collectors knocking on my door and they knew they were legally obligated to do it. They just, eh, we're not doing it. Um, they forced me to go to court and make them pay, which I did. Yeah. But I came to find out as, as a result of this, that this is happening all across America. If you're not in New York or, or some other cities where they have strong unions and strong laws, uh, you may very well be tossed aside like an old shoe after you are injured. Yeah. And the heartbreaking stories are legion. Um, I have a documentary film out there called The Wounded Blue. It's on Amazon.com. I urge everybody to watch this because it will it will shock you and it will break your heart. Man, I just... Uh... There's a, so I, I always have a soft spot for Michigan and I had saw an article of an officer that had been injured about, I, I think it was a year or two ago and he's had nothing but issues ever since. And, mm -hmm. uh, he was, he was trying to get back on duty. And then finally his department was like, you know what, this has gone on too long. We're done. So they fired him, but right. the outpour and I'm not taking credit for this. I just shared the article, but so many people shared that same article that all of a sudden they had a change of heart. It was a mistake. They weren't trying to fire him. They were letting him, they were trying to get a timeline and all this shit. So I'm glad that the, the social pressure worked for the better on this one, but how yeah. many have you heard of that? It doesn't thousands. Yeah. And you want to talk about why, Thousands, Why would you thousands. jump into this career field knowing that type of things out there? Exactly. Exactly. You you hit it right on the head. This is. I mean, I had thirty four years on the job. I just assumed that if I got hurt, I was going to be taken care of. Right. But that is not the case. It is in like if you're in New York City, and you get disabled, you're going to get sixty two point three five percent of your of your salary tax free for the rest of your life with medical. Yeah. That's, that's livable. Yeah. But if you're in Oklahoma, you get nothing. Yeah. You just get fired. Yep. That's crazy. So this is, this is why I created the organization. Believe me, this was not the path I thought I was going to be taking. Right. I thought I would put a few more years in and get my retirement and take a, a nice, job corporate security in one of the casinos and yeah. make a lot of money and enjoy my life. And I've never worked harder than I am right now for no money. <laughs> so whatever. Damn. Yeah. It, I, it's I literally I literally work seven days a week. 
I know you do. I've tried to talk to you on the phone several times. I'm surprised you haven't been blown up at least eight times on the phone since we've been talking. I was telling I put it on silent. Oh, there we go. I was talking to my dad. I goes, yeah, I, I, I was trying to tell him about you. And uh, and even he was like, I think I've heard of that dude. And I was like, yeah, he's on. It got all this stuff. I was like, but man, he like I was talking to him. He got interrupted by an NFL team. He got interrupted by this. He got interrupted. <laughs> I said, I was like, you know me. I'm just like, I, I let it go. I'm like, all right, cool. Call me when you can. Let's we'll get linked up eventually. I'm not an impatient guy. So. He's like, really? He's like, I was like, yeah, man, he's, he's a pretty big deal. This dude's working constantly. So for a retired guy. I know. Yeah. I know. I look, I look at some of my, some of my, uh, my uh, compadres who, uh, who uh, play golf seven days a week. And they look at me like, Randy, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? So are you doing? how um, you said you guys have helped 14,000. Is there any criteria uh, for what type of injury is, are we talking PTSD stuff? Are we talking physical injury? Uh, everything, 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 everything. I mean, we deal with a lot of physical injuries, but we deal with probably much more psychological injuries. Yeah. Um, post-traumatic stress injury. Uh, I don't call it disorder because it's not always a disorder, mm-hmm. uh, but post-traumatic stress injury is one of those things that we deal with constantly because it is as real as a bullet. And we know what the suicide rate is for law enforcement. So it's a, I'm going to say that that's probably, uh, it accounts for more than, than the physical injuries yeah. uh, because these, these men and women are, are facing, you know, not, not only external stuff from being a cop, you know, and the, and the horrible things you see and what you're called upon to take part in. <clears throat> but uh, now, now all the, 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 trauma from being abused on, uh, you know, by your own department. Um, law enforcement leadership uh, is something that uh, is still lacking when it comes down to um, law enforcement um, wellness. Yeah. And, you know, it's, wellness is, a, is an all-encompassing term. And there's some agencies that we're just now starting to recognize, uh, up until recently, you could, and it, it's still, this is the way it is in some places. You could be suffering from post-traumatic stress injury. You can go into your boss and ask for help and they can fire you. Right. That's still, that's still very much the, the norm in, in many places. Yeah. So I... you got, you got men and women out there suffering that can be fixed. It's an injury, just like any other injury. It can be fixed. Yep. There's more and more, um, there's more and more treatments available and, and some really cutting edge stuff. But unless you're unless you, you trust your agency, that's why we're such an amazing resource. Because Wounded Blue works with cops from all over the nation. We work with police departments all over the nation because we're autonomous. You know, even departments that try to do it right, that have a nice, you know, have a good police employee assistance program. There is... The cops don't trust their agency. They don't trust their leadership. And so they don't, even those that, that, that want to do it right, we are a resource for them. I can't tell you the number of cops who contact me from my own agency, even though there's a robust police employees assistance program, they still don't trust them. They want to come to somebody that's not going to be snitching them off to the, to the, to the leadership. Right. 
So, so that's why we're such an amazing resource. Yeah. The other thing, um, I had an episode with, uh, I've had a couple guys that come on and talked about their shootings and stuff like that. Um, people always love to hear those types of stories. Um, but I had a Sergeant on here who literally had a PTSD, um, moment, uh, or PTS injury. Is that what you call it? A PTS. Injury. I'm going to try to yeah. change my vernacular. So I'm going to start using it. <laughs> so, um, I like that though. Um, so he literally, uh, an issue he thought he was well past. He's a Sergeant. He was an officer when the shooting happened. Um, so there's been a lot of time that's passed and, uh, yeah, he, and he, he kind of broke down, you know, had his moment and, um, afterwards was asking, you know, should we, should I show this? I was like, dude, it's like, it's going to open a lot of people's eyes because as you probably know, in police work, there's a big stigma about admitting you're having some sort of mental issue difficulties for, for whatever, especially if you didn't get hurt. If you weren't physically injured, people think that you can't be messed up from it. You know, here he was, he's involved in a shooting where he had to take somebody's life. Um, and it, kind of a specific to the story, he did it in front of this guy's um, wife and kid. Right. So he's got that baggage with him. And um, yeah, something and, he thought he was and that passing. baggage never leaves you. Right. And so he got on here and basically was telling officers like, look, one, it's okay. And two, it's okay to be on medication, to get help, to do all these things. Don't let the stigma get to you. So it was, to me, it's, it's one of my favorite um, things that I've got to do on this show um, was do that. But the cooler part, which you probably have this on a grand scale with the, the wounded blue is I had a couple officers reach out to me from like two sides of the nation. One was from DC. The other was from the state of Washington. And they said that that one episode, one, it helped one of them get on medication. They didn't want to, mm -hmm. that helped push them over the edge. And then uh, the other one had said that they showed some clips to their roll call from the, the interview. So for me, that's that, good. That's great. That and that's awesome. That's really, that's important stuff, man. Yeah. So for what you're doing, if you've helped 14,000 officers and just the fact that some are coming across and telling you like, I, you know, I didn't kill myself today because y'all like that, you help one. It's worth it. Like you just help. Well, one. you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's, you, you can see my shirt. It says never forgotten, never alone. That's a cool logo, that by is, the way. That's our motto. That's a, some serious work went into that design. And well, relentless defender is our partner. And oh. uh, they, so they made this mug. I love relentless. Yeah. Um, he's a, they've, they've, uh, they're a contributor to us. They ignored um, my emails, but that's okay. <laughs> they, 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 uh, they, they do great work. Yeah. And uh, if anybody wants to get a shirt like this and help the wounded blue, just go to our, our website, thewoundedblue.org, go to the shop button and get yourself a mug or a hat or whatever. Okay. I've had, the link. I've had the link and up here since we've been talking. So if anybody's paying attention, um, it's all spelled out, thewoundedblue.org. So. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, but, but when you, when you get the ability to communicate to other people in, in a forum like this, you don't know who's listening. Right. You don't know um, who is in trouble. And so, by putting this out the way you are and the way I do, people will reach out yeah. and they can get help. They can become, uh, they can, they can become healthy again. There's a, there's, there's, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of help available. Sometimes, you know, what we do with peer support, sometimes just knowing that you're not walking the path alone is enough. Very often that is enough. Yeah. Now some need work. Some some have addiction issues. Some have uh, you know other other issues that they need to deal with, and they need a professional. And we have access to those. We this is what we do. We are a conduit for people who are in trouble. Yeah. And we and we literally um, you know play a very meaningful, specific role in the lives of those who are in need. Whether you're an active duty cop or you have been a cop. Yeah. Because once that trauma is there, um, you know, many have left the profession because of it. Yep. Well, they still need to deal with their with their issues. Yeah, it doesn't go away because you quit the job. Right. Yeah, that's a important thing. A lot of a lot of people think that, you know, it's just the military that have to deal with that. It's nurses, uh firefighters, cops. It's it it's yeah. it's never all these first responders, they these are things they've got to deal with, you know, even though they're just helping, they're pulling, you know, dead kids from wreckage and all exactly. these, these types of things exactly. that people don't want to talk about. And I'm like, you're going to lose a lot of good um, first responders that are on the job. And you're also going to prevent a lot of good first responders from ever doing the job. Yeah. So well, we've got something happening in October that um, I would like you to help get the word out about. Absolutely. Um, it's our second annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. And this is, if you have one police conference to go to in a year, this is the one, because this is life-saving stuff that we put out there. <clears throat> I literally have the best presenters in the country about every aspect of surviving a law enforcement career, physically, tactically, emotionally, sociologically, leadership, family, you name it. I got Kevin Gilmartin is on my team, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, who wrote the, the Bible for law enforcement yeah. called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Yep. That's um, a mandatory class for, for my criminology degree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yep. Uh, sheriff Mark Lamb, America's Sheriff. I've got uh, Dave and Betsy Smith, two of the, the most well-known uh, tactics instructors in the country. I've got... Uh, Jason Schechterly, whose story of survival after being horrendously burned in his patrol car will will just stun you. Yeah, um, it's going to be in the Midwest this year. It's going to be in Indiana, October okay. 11th through the 14th, and we're just about to make the announcement. So, by okay. all means, follow me on Facebook or follow the Wounded Blue on Facebook, and watch for our. We're about to uh, um, have a whole new website coming out that's really shit hot, and we will be announcing it and and where you can actually sign up. It's not expensive, okay? And it is phenomenal training. At the same time, we're going to have a lot of fun because I don't do things that aren't fun, right? No, that sounds like a blast, man. I would love to do something like that. I'm glad you brought up all those aspects of um, healthy police lifestyle, you know, all the tactics and family and all that stuff, just because it's some, like I'm like, I brag about where I work quite a bit without saying where I work, but we hit all that stuff. Nutrition. That's another big pillar. Yeah. That yeah. People, you're absolutely right. I'm like, when you work in midnights and you're eating 
cheeseburgers all garbage. day and you're right. eating all the, the the limited places that are open you're eating this garbage that if your physical health starts to go down well, it's natural that your mental health starts to go down you're not seeing yeah. the sun yeah. so you're not getting vitamin d there's just all these different aspects so that's cool that you um i don't want to preach too much i say this all the time on here so but you've got that going on and that is like if you can just get a couple officers to take that back to wherever they go that's huge because it yeah yeah it is it is and we had we had our first one in vegas and i and i gotta tell you man i've been contacted by so many people who attended it saying it was the best conference they've ever been to yeah and that's what we intended to be damn why couldn't you have it in vegas again man (laughs) (laughs) i tell you i'll tell you why because um another couple of charities um uh, one is the wife of a recently murdered police officer and the other is the sister of a, of a recently murdered police officer came to me. They attended the conference and said, would you please bring it to the Midwest? Okay. And so how do I say no to that? Yeah, no, you can't, <laughs> you can't. And it, the Midwest is one of those, in my opinion, more neglected police areas who gets all the attention. Well, a lot of those guys are, I mean, you know, this is when, when I talk about, if I was the if I was the, the the leader of the free world and I could make I could affect some you know national changes to law enforcement, one of those that I would do would be a minimum salary requirement for policing because the the incredible disparity between what what police officers are being paid is a impediment to professionalizing the profession. <clears throat> give you an example. Um, as part of my show, I have a, a, a um, end of show on what's called end of watch. And I eulogize the officers that were killed during the previous week. And I was doing that and uh, I was talking about a Pennsylvania officer, 25-year veteran who was uh, answering a domestic and was, um, was murdered on the front porch by an ambush. And, and I eulogized him. And then a couple of weeks later, I get a message from a coworker of his. And he says, Randy, I don't know if you know this, but he was making $9 and 78 cents an hour when he was killed. What? At 25 years? Yeah. Dang. That's why I left my first place. I was up in uh, Saginaw, Michigan, and I was, I was making less than what a Walmart manager makes. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and this has happened across the country. Yeah. I mean, in the Midwest, I was talking to a police captain. He was making $35,000 a year. That's crazy. It is crazy, but it's happening. So that's, that's also another one of the critical factors that affect policing. In order to make ends meet, what do they have to do? They got to work a second job, some a third job. Right. And then... That affects their fatigue level. Yep, they start and plummeting. fatigue is a killer of cops. Yep. So all of this enters into the equation, and this is all part of of police wellness. Yeah. And so this it's a it's this topic I'm very very passionate about. I'm with you on and, that, and it's it's part of. Um, so I would you know just if you would help me spread the word about this law enforcement survival summit. It's going to have uh, you know it's only going to be able to house a certain amount of people. So we're, we're just about to make the announcement. Okay. Put up the, uh, um, 
the registration form. Okay. So it's not expensive. It's 295 bucks. Best training you'll ever have. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm down. <laughs> I'll go. I don't have anything going on in October anyway. So, uh, no, I expect to see you there. Sweet. I'll be there. I'll bring you a honorary two cops, one donut sticker or something. Okay. All right. <laughs> but, um, so getting to the point of police profession and it being a true profession, what are the things that people expect of cops? You tell me if you agree with this. They want us to be psychologists. They want us to be uh, language experts. They want us to be animal control. They want us to be car mechanics. They want us to be, they want us to fix your kids. They want us to be parents. They want us, they got all these, they want us to be teachers. They want us to be medics. They want us to be all of these things. They want us to be masters of all these different professions all into one. And they don't want to pay for those expertise. You know what I'm saying? Like, where there needs to be a flip where they don't look at police work as a, a job. They don't look at it as a, a blue collar to me for what you expect of me. That's a white collar profession because training never ends. You're, you're doing at least a uh, 40 hour training every year is continuous training on top of firearms training, um, use of force training, all the, the all the prereqs that, that you have mm-hmm. to do regardless. That doesn't even count towards your 40-hour training a year. Doctors don't even have that. Lawyers don't have that. Once they become a lawyer, they just keep up, they keep up with the laws that affect them, and that's it. But they want police to do all of these things, and every time something new happens, well, now mental health is a big issue, so now I need a crisis intervention team. So you guys got to go get trained in dealing with mentally crisis issued people. You got to do all these things, Mm -hmm. but you got an officer out there making $9 an hour. Yeah, exactly. It's true. Right. The fuck. And and it's, it's absolutely, that's why policing is truly an impossible job to please people. Yeah. Because nobody, nobody has all the skills and the ability to do all the things for all the people. Right. And unfortunately, you you have a sensationalist <coughs> media that if somebody fails um, to do something that other people think they should be doing, then it becomes this big negative uh, opportunity for the media to exploit. Yeah. You know, they want, they literally, people literally expect you to shoot the guns out of people's hands. Yeah. Or shoot them in the leg. Shit, like right. as if that's a, and and I'm not trying for people listening. And if you're you're on the fence about supporting police, you're one of the you know, you're you're on here to kind of try to hear us out and and make an objective decision. I I'm not trying to do the oh look at look at cops. We're this we're up here. We're so great. We're all grand. I'm trying to show you the expectations that people have of us, and there's no way to become a master in these things in a, in a, in a one week class or eight hour course, you know? So yes, it's great to touch and and get a little education. That's what we get. Um, unless you're going to be a specialized, like a SWAT unit or, um, crimes against children unit. Like they start becoming a specialist. They get this high training for that stuff, but your day to day street cop, he can't, you can't reasonably expect that of him, especially if you don't pay him. Like you got to, you're not going to get a, 
people want us to get qualified psychologists out there to, to take calls with us. What psychologist is going to do that? None. They're going to make yeah. more money in the private right. sector on their own anyway. Right. And there's, there's been some failed attempts to send a, you know, a, a counselor out instead of a cop. And we've, we've seen, we've seen uh, uh, how that has yeah. resulted in the deaths of uh, and injuries of people who are well-meaning. Yeah. And, and they're doing the, the politicians bidding by saying, Oh, look, we're not sending police to a mental health call. We're sending a mental health professional and they're in danger. Right. I mean, that's the long and short of it. You know, believe me, I don't know one cop that says, Oh yeah. Oh, I'll oh, send me to a crazy person call. That's my favorite thing of the whole day to do. <laughs> right. Right. No, we, we don't want to do it either. Yeah. But there is nobody more well-suited than a cop. That's just the reality. Yes. And so that's, I just, if I could get people to understand, like these are legitimately the training and stuff that we are getting these days. It, it's a, it's a lot. It's a ton of stuff. Now I, I'm a nerd. I, I got my master's degree in criminology. I, I keep continuing to go to school and I can tell you in the time that I went to school, there is no way that I could have mastered all of the things, it, it, the amount of work I did for my degree versus the stuff I have to do for police work. It, there's no comparison. The, the degree was easier than the continuous oh, training that I have to do with police work. Sure. And the degree was easy because it was in my field. It's, Mm-hmm. I cheated. Uh, basically it's cop work. I, I know how to do that stuff. So it was an easy degree to go for. Now, if you would have got me to be like a math major or something like that, I would have, I would have failed. <laughs> I wouldn't have made it. So, um, all right, sir. I think I beat that one to death. Uh, the next thing I want to know about is your books. You got four books out there. You got a fifth one coming out. Okay. I do. So walk me yeah. down. First off, <laughs> how do you even have the patience to write a book? I don't. That's why I did the podcast. It's easier for me to talk. I can't write. Well, I never intended to be a writer, just like I never intended to be the creator of a charity. Yeah. It's, uh, I never, I never, I never planned to be an actor, even though I've been in a bunch of movies and casino, which is my favorite. I want to hear about that. Um, it's just the way that the, that the fates worked. Um, I had a, a life-changing experience when I was uh, when I was a sergeant, and that life-changing experience was saving the life of a one-month-old baby oh. um, who had been shot in the face in a drive-by shooting. Oh man! And um, it was I. I was on patrol. <clears throat> I saw a car up on the sidewalk right off the strip, Las Vegas Strip, and people are running around screaming. So I radio for backup because I don't know what I got. And as I get out, I see there's bullet holes all over the car. And there's a, a hysterical woman and, and a father and their one-month-old baby who's in a little little infant seat is there and she's bleeding because she's been shot in the face. Um, some gangbangers had pulled up on a gang initiation and just opened fire on the car for no reason and, uh, and hit the baby. Well, literally it happened minutes before I got there. So I'm you know, dealing with this scene and I see the babies turning blue. Um, and I couldn't wait for the ambulance. So the first patrol car that got there, I scooped her up. She'd been hit in the face and 
all the tissue and stuff went down her throat and choked her. Okay. So I was able to clear her airway and then give her mouth to face resuscitation because her head was only this big. And because I was there so quickly, um, I brought her back and no brain damage. Nice. So that was such um, a um, emotional experience for me that when I went home that night, I took out a yellow pad and paper and wrote the story. Oh, that night? That night. Wow. It was called Her Name Was Jackie. So I didn't have anything to do with the story. I just felt like I needed to write it. Yeah. And so I wrote it, stuck it in a drawer, and there it sat for several years until the World Trade Center was attacked. And the, the extreme loss of law enforcement lives in that incident left me with a feeling of powerlessness that I couldn't help those officers. And then I got an idea. And the idea was every cop I know has a story like that that's sitting in that drawer right now. I'm going to ask cops to write that story. I'm going to put them in a book. And then I'm going to give all the money away to the Widows and Orphans Fund for the cops who were killed in 9-11. And that's exactly what I did. Okay. And how that book got published is in and of itself an incredible an incredible story. Um, getting a book book published by a major publisher when nobody knows who the hell you are is a major feat. Yeah. And I was able to raise a bunch of money for that for the the families of those kids. That's uh, those, those so officers. Are you still in contact so, with that baby? Uh, she's my goddaughter. Oh my god! Are you serious? That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Wow. No. Yeah. No, she's, she's been part of my life since that day. That is incredible. That, oh my God. Well, wait a minute. Gives me goosebumps, dude. <laughs> he says, wait a minute. Get out of here. What's her name? Jackie. Jackie. Okay. Oh, that's right. That yeah. was the name of the story. I'm dumb. Yep. So, okay. uh, so anyway, so the, the, the publisher, St. Martin's Press, liked my story so much and the way I put the book together that they asked me to write my own book of all my own stories. And that's what I did. That was called A Cop's Life. Okay. That's probably my best book. I got that right um, here, A Cop's Life. And that, that book I'm, is still selling. Um, it's available on Amazon. But that book, I got so many messages from cops around the country. Randy, I thought I was alone in my feelings. Thank you for writing that book because I was in a very dark place. And I realized that I'm not the only one. Yeah. And so that that also gave me, you know, more ammunition when I started The Wounded Blue to have that knowledge yeah, that that is that aloneness feeling is what can destroy people. Yeah, and so knowing that there are others that are going through the same thing is critical. So um, then I wrote a second edition of True Blue, called True Blue to Protect and Serve. I gave most of that money to the National Law Enforcement Memorial. Okay, and then um, when I retired is when I wrote the book, The Power of Legacy. 
because of my own near-death experience, um, I wanted to do something that uh, that um, would leave a legacy. Yeah. And so that I did that book, which was a life-changing book for me. <clears throat> um, what after after I had the stroke, um, I should mention that that you know what led up to that stroke, besides me discovering I had a serious heart problem that I didn't know, was I had just been. Uh, my mother three weeks before died in my arms after a long illness. Oh, man. A couple of months before that, I was involved in my fifth shooting and uh, uh, a fatal shooting, this one. And so there was a lot of stuff going on in my brain. And um, and then after I had the stroke, I, I lost my job. You know, I could no longer be a cop. Yeah. So I had all this loss going on. And I was, and then, and then the doctor told me to prepare for my own death, which is not what I expected to hear. Yeah. So all of this is going on in my brain and I'm thinking, you know, where's my life go now? What, what do I do? What, what's, what's my path now? And, um, in the weird way that, that the fates have always played a role in my life. One day I'm, I'm sitting and watching an inner TV interview with a guy named Frank Shankwitz. Now that you probably don't know that name, do you? No, it doesn't ring a bell. But you do know what he did because he's the man who created the Make a Wish Foundation. Oh, okay, yes. And he was an Arizona State Trooper when he created Make a Wish. Oh, okay. The story is absolutely amazing. I was mesmerized. I was glued to the. I was glued to the TV like this, you know. And I said, and it was like somebody flicked on a light bulb. And I said to myself, "That's it." I want to talk to guys like Frank Shankwitz about who it was in their lives that that created the want to play a major role in the lives of others. Yeah. Right? And so that's so I said, I'm gonna write this book. And I reached out to Frank Shankwitz, who lived in Arizona at the time. Now, even when he, he created Make-A-Wish, he, he remained a cop. For 40 years. He was a 40-year police officer. Wow. And um, and his story of how he grew up and what who it was in his life, how he was mesmerizing. So anyway, I reached out to him. This is this is a true story. I reached out to him and I said, told him who I was. And because of our share of law enforcement. He said, I'll be happy to meet with you. Yeah. So I was going to, I live in Vegas. He lives in Prescott, Arizona. And the day before he calls me, he says, I'm going to knock an hour off your time. Meet me in the town of Seligman at this diner. Okay. And I said, okay. And I'm trying to think, where the hell is Seligman? (laughs) So I look it up and it's on old route 66. Now, why is that significant? And I'm going to tell you. You, this is way before you were even a thought process in your parents' brain. Yeah. But there was a television show called Route 66. Okay. And I loved that show as a child. And it was about, and it was one of the most brilliantly written TV series that still exists today. And it was uh, 
two guys in an old Corvette who traveled the only interstate at the time, Route 66, which went from Chicago to L.A. And they were basically two guys on the search for adventure. And they were like two modern-day knights errant. And they'd stop in a town when they needed to get a job to pay for gas for the trip. And they would meet with people and get involved in their lives. And it was just, to me, it was what being... It was what being a knight should be, okay. You know, in modern in modern times, right? So, I literally modeled my life after that stupid television show. <laughs> and right now, if you were to look out in my driveway, you'd see a Corvette because since I've been driving, I've been driving Corvettes because of that show. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm tracking. All right. Now, I'm going to meet with him on Old Route 66. So this, to me is it's a sign this is this is fun for me yeah and now the other part of this is that every day that i grew up my father considered himself kind of like a uh, a photographer so he had pictures hanging on the wall of all these pictures he'd taken throughout his life and so i would walk by these pictures every single day for years years my whole entire childhood and there was a picture of three Western storefronts hanging on the wall that I looked at every day. Never thought a thing about it. So I go to Sligman. I've got the top down in my car. I'm listening to my, my, my doo-wop music. I'm on the way to meet Frank Shankwitz. It's a beautiful November day. And I'm in, I'm in heaven, man. This is, this is awesome. I pull into this parking lot of this diner. And I've just driven five hours, so it's, you know, I'm stiff. And I get out and I stretch like this. And I look across the street, and there's the three storefronts that my father's, that were in my father's photograph. So he's been there. My father was standing exactly where I was 50 years before. Uh, a coincidence that this guy says, let's meet yeah. here an hour shorter. Yeah. Talk yeah. about, I don't know if anybody's uh, religious or spiritual or whatever, but... It's a lot of dots being connected right there's there. There's a lot of dots. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and it literally knocked it literally knocked me off my my feet. I had to I had to brace myself on the car because it it was such it was so impactful. Yeah. That oh my god. Yeah. How does this happen, right? So anyway, I was I was very emotional, and and I walk into into the diner, and there's Frank Shankowitz. You, you can't miss this guy. He's bigger than life. His, he was wearing his customary black cowboy hat because he was a real honest-to-God cowboy. And I sit down, and he looks at me. He says, are you okay? And because he could see I was a little shaken. Yeah. And I told him what just happened. And he leaned back, and he said, you fucking city cops, you're so sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> typical cowboy typical guy. and that began a friendship that lasted quite literally to the day he died Damn. and uh, not only was he my friend but he was my mentor yeah and he helped me create the wounded blue that's amazing that is amazing and uh and now i have his black cowboy hat really yeah dude that's that's legit i'm like a fake cowboy i wear a cowboy hat because it's part of our <laughs> uniform and well, you you're, can. you're a Texan, man. Yeah, so and I'm here, but I grew up in Michigan. I, I didn't 
I didn't do any real cowboying, so <laughs> I feel phony. But that's awesome, man. I mean, it's, you know, I touched, whether you're a, a religious person or not, there's just things in your life that you can't, you, you, you can't equate to anything else but a higher power. And that is a, that's. Well, I tell you that, that, that higher power has been responsible for, for guiding my entire life. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I never intended to be an author. I never intended to be an actor. I never intended to run a charity, but this is, if you go through life and you listen to uh, those, those, um, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but those voices that, yeah. that actually reach you, mm-hmm. they will tell you your path. Yeah, that's, you know, I'm not trying to get all sappy, but that's one of the reasons I started this. Mm-hmm. It, like, yeah. I had the idea for a while, but all of a sudden, the what the idea was, just like you said, it just hit me. It's like an epiphany, and you're just like, that's what, I, that's what I'm supposed to do. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so you, so you get, you, you get hooked up with him. You're had, when did, when did you have your stroke? Like how long ago was that from today? A little over 10 years ago. So 10 years ago. So obviously you beat the odds with what the doctors were telling you because it's 10 years later. So that's amazing. Well, yes, it is. But six months ago, six months ago, I was, <clears throat> I was, um, now I've been very careful. I've been going to a cardiologist ever since, every religiously. Yeah. And watching my health, I'm very, I'm, I mean, I, I, I listen to my body. So about six months ago, no, not even that, I was getting a little breathless when I was in the gym. And I went to the cardiologist and I said, there's something not right. So he gave me all the tests that you get, you know, the treadmill and the nuclear dye test and the EKG and all that other stuff. And he said, Randy, I can't find anything. Yeah. And I said, well, I know my body, something is not right. And he said, well, you know what we have to do? We have to do a catheterization. And that's where they send, they send the camera up your arter, up, up into your arteries to check. Yeah. To see if you have any, any blockage. It's not a pleasant experience. And I said, okay, well, let's schedule it. And I got very busy and I was going to, ch- I was going to uh, postpone it because I was just so busy. But I couldn't get another appointment for like months. So I said, all right, let's make it happen. So I go to the hospital, get ready to do the test. And they give you some pretty good drugs. And, <laughs> Hell yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and the, the, my girlfriend is, is sitting with the doctor and they're watching the scope. And I hear him say to her, hey, take a look at this. I've never seen this on a live human being before. And it registered with me, but I just didn't give a shit because I'm, yeah. I'm good drugs, right? So I came out of the, I came out of the, the, the drugginess, and the doctor said, "Randy, you will be dead within three days, unless we do a quadruple bypass right now." Holy shit! And that's what happened. And the test didn't pick that shit up. Nope. What the hell? What's the point of the test? I know exactly. Shit. I'm gonna go get checked out. I'm almost once 40. again that little <laughs> voice that was, you know, it literally saved my life. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> but it, you know, at the same time, reminded me once again of of you know my mortality. Yeah, and you know we're all there, listen. Tomorrow isn't isn't promised to any of us, right? So every day that 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 
I am a functional human being is means to me that I need to continue to play a role in this world yeah. and do what I do. Um, so that's a, that's a driving force for me. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, the, the, um, you know, the reality is, you know, um, we're, we're all one phone call away from a tragedy and we're all, you know, one moment away from, from our own, our own death. Yeah. I heard today I was, I was in fact, just before I came on the show, um, I was contacted by somebody who told me that, um, a woman who I had had, uh, an incredible relationship with, um, just died and it just, it really, really shook me up. Yeah. Really shook me up. I just, uh, just, I'm just, I'm still in shock over it. And so, you know, it just reinforces that, you know, tomorrow's promise to no one. Yeah. And they, guys like us, the, the call for service, like, obviously, and my dad's the same way. He's, he's been retired, I think five, six years now, 30 years of law enforcement. Um, he's still serving. Like he's not, a, he's not a cop anymore, but he's still helping with following, like he does the private eye stuff. He's following up with investigations and doing stuff like mm -hmm. that. You're out there giving back to, um, and that's one of the important things I want to point out to people. Um, like it's one thing for, for cops to, or first responders in general to help the public. This is the first time on my show where we've actually reflected on how we help each other. Like, I mean, that's, it's kind of the message I got from this entire show is like, it's not just about, helping the community which is great but in order to help bridge the gaps we gotta we gotta take care of the roots you know and, and yeah and the that's roots, right the roots are within us um and yep and that's that's 100 right so uh, i think that part's important but um i want to i want to end this with some some not so heavy uh talk i want to talk about your acting career, sir. That's kind of, <laughs> that is interesting to me. I have written down, cause I told you I did a little research. I see you, you were on cops. That's not acting. Um, you were on America's most wanted, which I'm really, did you meet Jim Walsh? Uh, I did. Oh my God. That's like me growing up. That guy was a legend. So I want to know about Jim Walsh, but you were also on casino. And this is what I'm going to make fun of you for Miss Congeniality too. <laughs> and you were on fools rush in. I think I've seen Fools Rush in. I definitely watched Casino a million times. Um, but why were you on Miss Congeniality 2? Liz, because they called me for a role. Okay. What was your role? I played the uh, casino uh, host. Oh, okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. But, uh, okay, let's go to Casino. I want to know about Casino. What the hell was that like? That had to be amazing. Well, I tell you, once again, you know, the the... the the fates played it played its role. Yeah. So from being on cops, um, like this casting director had seen me on the show. Okay. And I get a phone call one day saying, Hey, there's going to be a film shot in Vegas. And the director wants realism in the part of a police officer. Would you come down and do an audition? Said, yeah, sure. I'm always up for an adventure. Right. Okay. So I go to the old Riviera hotel. I walk into this suite and who's standing there but Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Oh, what <laughs> the fuck? Yeah. So it was for the movie Casino. Yeah. Which I, I had no idea what it was. So 
usually on an audition, they give you what's called sides, which are lines. And they give you a piece of paper and it's got some lines and you read it with the casting director. And they gave me the sides, but we started talking. And my, my audition actually consisted of me telling funny stories about being a Vegas cop. Okay. And they said, fuck it, you got the part. So nice. That's how I that's how I got into the Screen Actors Guild. That's how I became, you know, whatever roles I did, you know, as an actor was yeah. because of that. Okay. That's awesome. So did you ever get a point where you got to like hang out with those dudes? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was on that set. That scene that I did was three weeks of filming. Damn. And so I so I uh I was on that show or on that on the screen, you know, it turned out to be maybe a three or four minute part. Yeah. But it was three, almost three weeks of shooting. So I was there. I mean, I, I hung out with Robert De Niro. This is before he went crazy. Yeah. This is when he was a pretty cool guy. <laughs> um I actually so my scene was with him and Sharon Stone. But Don Rickles was on the set the whole time, who was a funny son of a bitch. And and uh, also, uh, um, oh, shit. What's the... The little dude. Joe Pesci. Pesci, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so so this is about two years ago. I get... There, there was the 25th anniversary of the film, and a newspaper reporter <clears throat> called me and said, I'm doing a, a story about about Casino, and I'm interviewing people who were on the cast about memories of the film. Do you have a specific memory? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Okay. She said, what is it? And I said, well, my my scene was with Sharon Stone and, and De Niro, but that wasn't, I, I, I said, I, that was, of course, you know, really cool for me. But one day I was walking by Joe Pesci's dressing room. And Joe Pesci is about this big. Yeah, right? he's a little dude. He's a little guy. And he was standing out front smoking a cigar about that big <laughs> in his ratty old bathrobe with pink bunny slippers. All right. And I walked by and I did, and it was just a funny look, you know, and I started laughing. And he says, what are you laughing at? I said, that's a hell of an outfit, man. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. <laughs> I told this reporter, I told this reporter, I got a New Jersey fuck you from Joe Pesci. That was the highlight of my of my film career. That is awesome. That is awesome, man. That is that is an iconic movie, man. I was like, I gotta ask him about that. So that's awesome. And then, oh, I don't know if you know this. I have my own IMDb, sir. Um, I got to be a part of a uh, charity video that was created for um, a little girl bringing awareness to her very, very rare disorder um, that is curable. So basically, it's one of those things you got to get swab DNA tests. Um, and you try to find a match and if you find a match, it cures her for life type thing. So, mm. um, they made this, uh, uh, pink, the, the, the singer, um, they made these like parody videos on that. Well, it was all cops and firefighters were the cast because she was an honorary cop and firefighter. She wanted to do that stuff. So it's called Hallie's heroes. It's a lot like, you know, make a wish foundation, stuff like that. But for her specific disease, um, Mm-hmm. So, um, and I will say that we did end up getting her a match. She did end up getting cured. So that was amazing. That's very cool. Yeah. But in that, I made really good friends with the director. His name's Chris Hatchett. He's the one actually who taught me how to do all this via FaceTime over the phone. 
like taught me how to edit and all of that stuff. So you talk about service, this guy, like he didn't have to take the time. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. And he taught me wow. how to do all this crap. That's cool. Yeah. So, but anyway, I, we were joking around one day and I was like, man, I'm, I'm taking And I was in the video for maybe 10 seconds. I was, uh, <laughs> we were mirroring, um, the mad hatter video and uh, I was time was the name of the character. Just basically you hold a watch and you look like this big clock type guy. So I didn't say anything and really do anything. I just looked at the watch and I look at her and I kind of nod my head and that was it. Um, but he may, I was joking about, I was like, man, I, don't I get my own IMDB now? And he <laughs> sends me a link 10 minutes later. He's like, you got one. Like, oh man, look at that. So uh, I was like, I'm officially an actor. Yeah. So that was kind of funny. But um, yeah. So dude, you were in the screen actors guild though. That's like, that's an accomplishment. That's pretty cool to be able to say. I don't know anybody else that can say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it well, and, and, and here's, here's um, um, so, so a certain, you know, uh, fateful kind of thing. Um, there is a movie about Frank Shankwitz's life called Wishman, okay, which was a which was a, an independent film about his life, and uh, uh, I'm in that film. Oh, nice! So I I got to play a role in in Frank's movie. Really? Did you made, wear the hat? I no, I played a I played an Indiana trooper. Oh, okay, okay. So you got the old Smokey the Bear. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, if you remember, I know this was a while back. Did, how much do they pay you to do something like that for Casino? I a, got paid a lot of money for that. I really? got Screen Actors Guild wages. Oh, which that's that's you. So you get union wages. Oh, because yeah, you I, know I, me, I'm thinking. I made, cop part-time money amount of money on that <laughs> I just my mind automatically goes to like, you know, how much an hour is that for a cop part-time? You know. <laughs> For today's wages, you know, a cop part time is usually somewhere between thirty five to fifty five an hour. Just depends yeah. on where you're at. Yeah. So uh, that's awesome, and I bet there's officers that work security for that. Oh yeah, and they were probably like, "You motherfucker, how'd you get yes. out of there?" Yep, yep, you're you're exactly right. Yeah. That's awesome because where I'm at, eighteen eighty three has been filming, or well, they were. Um, it's all over with now, but that was a big one. Cops were all over it. There is a ton of cops in that show. People don't even know. Don't even oh, know really? that they're cops. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Um, now America's most wanted. Why were you like, <clears throat> dude, that that's legendary to me. Jim Walsh was so, like the shit. So it, it, it uh, once again, there was an open audition and the casting agent called me and said, Hey, <clears throat> come down and do this role. <clears throat> Excuse me. This and so I wound up playing the. So th this was a, a true story, of course. Yeah, yeah, they are. Not, right. Um, about a police officer who was shot during a bar robbery at a party for cops. So oh, I actually I actually did frequent this bar, and the oh. officer who was shot was a personal friend of mine oh man so unbeknownst to him i'm playing him so he survives he survived he was shot seven times dang during a robbery it's like 50 cent so there was a there was a police band everybody in the band was a cop was performing at this bar it was called pigs in a blanket 
Hell that yeah. That's what I'm talking and about. so there was a ton of cops in the place. But at the time, we had a sheriff who was breaking our balls. If you were, if you were in a bar and you were drinking and you had a gun, he would go after you. Uh, so th- there's a ton of cops in this place. And maybe one and only one guy had a gun, and that was my friend Dennis. <clears throat> so these three punks come in, announce a robbery, fire a shot, and he draws his little freaking 25 or 32 caliber little pocket gun. Yeah. And engages this guy who's got a 40 caliber semi-automatic lock. Lots of rounds. And he gets shot like six times when he manages to kill the son of a bitch. Oh, okay. So I'm pl- and the other two f- fled, and so that's what America's Most Wanted. That's what this this was about. Okay, so you did the reenactment thing, like the whole. Yeah, I played him. Okay, that's and he awesome. walks in. He has no idea that I'm playing him, right? <laughs> and he walks in and he starts laughing. He says, "Oh my God, Randy Sutton's playing me." <laughs> that's great. And we still laugh about it today. So did did you know before him? Well, obviously you knew before him, but did you know it was him like as soon as they were talking about the role in the oh, call? Sure. You knew you Absolutely. so you knew right away. That's oh, yeah. funny. Dude, that's legit. That's no, very cool. Funny. It is funny. Yeah. Well, all right, brother. We've we've been doing this almost two hours. This has been uh I think this has been a pretty damn productive podcast for me i mean the honor's all on this side but uh is there anything else that you want to plug that you want to say that you need to get out there uh just asking people if uh, if you want to support law enforcement um the wounded blue is my charity we are in constant need because it's not been easy raising money for a police charity i can tell you that and we're doing amazing work we're touching lives and uh we can use we can use your help so go to thewoundedblue.org, and uh, if you can give, give. If you can't, I understand, and just know who we are. If you're a law enforcement officer and you've been struggling, please reach out to me, and uh, and we'll get you we'll get you the the help that you need. It's no, there's no there's no stigma attached to this. There's no judgment attached to this. This is just your brothers and sisters taking care of you. Very cool. And with your permission, sir, I will, uh, I'll put a permanent link up on my website and then people can, uh, find it on that as well. Um, I'll try to put all the social media stuff as long as you're cool with it. Um, but yeah, man, I appreciate it. And, uh, thanks for, for being a part of the show, man. I'm I'm actually really excited to get this one out there. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Great to to talk to you. 